1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28 is where I would like to direct your attention. We're going to read from verses 3 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 28. While you're turning there, let me just reiterate, please. Uh, do consider coming to the baptism service this evening. It's at Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster. I know it's inconvenient to go somewhere else for a service, but uh, we're going to have that baptism service tonight at 6. If you have young children, I don't anticipate that it will be a lengthy service. That need not be a concern that you should have for tonight, but please do uh, come. They're always good. I get to hear the testimonies or read them before you do. It will be worth coming tonight, so please um, consider that. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, he will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king king said to her, Don't be afraid. Who do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed me from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given to one of your neighbors, to David, Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out His fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he'd eaten nothing all that day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life into my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me give you some food so that you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. 
stick some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. My goal today is to obey Hebrews 3.13. We read that passage just a few minutes ago. Dave read it for us. Uh, Remember what Hebrews 3.13 says. It says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This is what I want to do this morning. I want to encourage you today or warn you. I want to warn you. This is not hard to understand the connection between Hebrews 3 and 1 Samuel chapter 28. In both passages, the connection is, is about, the main topic is about listening, listening to God's word. And I want to encourage you. I, I want to warn you this morning. One of the means that God uses to keep us listening carefully to Him is our encouragement of one another. We warn each other. We encourage each other. We plead with one another. Don't stop listening to God's Word. Don't harden your heart. Don't be fooled into thinking that when God speaks, it matters little. So we encourage one another. Some of you uh, probably have done this, but Joshua Rogers is a young father. He writes for Christianity Today, and he has made a practice over the years of reading the Chronicles of Narnia to his children. The first time they went through the Chronicles of Narnia, they got to the last book, which is called The Last Battle, and in, in one of the opening scenes, all of the children who have ever visited Narnia are back in the book, and they're there to join in this battle. They're all there except for one, Susan. Susan was one of the original four children to visit uh, Narnia. She's in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She rescued Narnia from the White Witch. And when they get to the last battle, she's not there. And Joshua Rogers was reading this to his his daughter, and his daughter turned to him, and she said, where's Susan? That question actually isn't answered until the end of the book when when one of the characters asks uh, Peter, Susan's brother, about her. Now let me read from the book. My sister Susan, uh, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. And Rogers writes this. Susan thought she had grown up, grown out of, grown past, a great king like Aslan, and a land as blessed as Narnia. She didn't need it. She didn't want it anymore. Encourage one another. Warn one another, as long as it's called today, not to to stop listening. Now, the story before us that we have in the Bible that we just read is strange. (laughs) Here it is, a ghost story in the Old Testament. That's what happens here. Samuel the prophet comes back as a spirit and warns Saul about what's going to happen to him. Uh, This has puzzled interpreters for thousands of years. There are several interpretations of what's going on here. Some people think that the medium, this woman, is fooling Saul. That's one interpretation. Some people believe that this is a demon or Satan somehow involved or that Saul took some sort of hallucinogenic drugs and he has a vision, or that Saul is so overwhelmed with psychological trauma that he is hallucinating. It seems to me, though, that the simplest explanation of the text is that this is actually what happened, that 
that the spirit of Samuel returned to earth at the call of this medium and spoke with Saul. The spirit looks like Samuel. He sounds like Samuel. He says things that Samuel has said before. Remember that in all of the warnings that the Bible gives us about magic and mediums and astrology, the emphasis of these warnings is not that those practices are fake, that they're all hoaxes, though I'm sure there are many of them that are fake and hoaxes. The, the warning of the Bible is not about the fact that they are fake. The warning of the Bible is that all of those are attempts to manipulate or sidestep God. God speaks through prophets. God speaks through His Son. God speaks through His Word. He does not speak through a Ouija board. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Let's talk about Saul. Um, by the way, if you're taking notes this morning, this is not going to be uh, easy to follow. But, uh, the main purpose of the note sheet in your bulletin, which you should have before you perhaps, is to give you some of the extra verses that I'm going to read as we go along. Um, you can see those passages when I refer to them, but uh, sometimes my outline sticks out. It doesn't stick out quite like it does usually does this morning. So uh, I hope you benefit from listening. We're just going to walk through the text uh, very slowly here this story. And we're going to start with Saul. Saul, this great king. We've been watching Saul's downfall for several months. It, it started early in his reign as Israel's first king. You remember the story of the Bible. So Moses led the Israelites. He died. Then Joshua led the Israelites. He died. Then there were these group of men and women called, uh, the Bible calls judges. They were more like warriors, generals, who led the people. And, and then when they were gone from the scene, the Israelites said to God, we want a king. We want a king just like all the other nations have. That, that's their model, all the other nations. And asking for a king for that reason was a, a rejection of God. It was a deviation from God's rule. But he still gave them Saul. And Saul, at the beginning, well, he looked like the sort of king they wanted. He was handsome. He was tall. He was strong. And he was quite successful. He, he, he had a lot of victories. There were signs of fidelity in his life to God. In fact, verse 3 mentions one of them. It says, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. That's good. He did that in obedience to God's word. Now, <laughs> it's a good thing. It happened a long time ago, but it's mentioned here in the text in verse 3 to remind you that Saul knows that what he's going to do is a violation of God's law. So, it's a good thing, but it's mentioned here for a, a negative reason. Saul's downfall started early in his reign. And the key issue in Saul's downfall was his refusal to obey God. When God commanded the king, Saul, to destroy the Amalekites. And when that happened, the prophet Samuel came and told Saul, you did not obey God. Look what 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 says. Samuel said to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And the heart... And to heed, sorry, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's a very interesting phrase. Because Saul is in the process of doing something very much like divination. You go visit a medium, you, you, you're, you're doing a form of, of divination. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. 
We've watched Saul's life fall apart until this moment here, this climactic moment. The Bible tells us the Philistines have come for war, and uh, uh, the Philistines, they bothered Saul his whole life. Here they come, and Saul, up on Mount Gilboa, can see them coming, and he knows they are here to win. He's terrified, afraid. Now, what's interesting is that the language here in chapter 28 appears one other time like this in the book of Samuel. In fact, one other time in the, in the Bible. It says, the text says, that the Israelites set up camp and the Philistines set up camp and the leader was very afraid. Terror filled his heart. One other time this happened in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Do you remember that? It was a long time ago. Uh, Eli was the high priest and Eli did not obey God either. And the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4 set up their camp. And the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4 set up their camp. And Eli was, the, the text says, terror filled his heart. It's exactly the same thing that happened here. 1 Samuel chapter 4 is the day that Israel was defeated and Eli and his sons both died. And when the, author, the narrator here uses that same language, you think to yourself, something bad is going to happen. This is going to be bad. So what does Saul do? He's afraid. He inquires of the Lord. The problem is that the Lord will not answer him. That's not the way it actually works with David. Remember, David had trouble with the Philistines too. I wrote this verse down from from chapter 23, verse 1. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Caleb and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord. Good thing to do. Saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him. Immediately, without problem, without question, God answers. Go, attack the Philistines and save Caleb. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we're, we're afraid. How much more if we go to Caleb against the Philistine forces? It's bad enough here. David, you want us to go against them up there? So David inquired of the Lord again, asking the same question. And God, without hesitation, without problem, without delay, answers him. Go down to Caleb, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. You know the difference between Saul and David's experience here in inquiring of the Lord? God answers uh, David. Saul gets no answer at all. In fact, verse 6 tells us how bad it is. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams. God speaks by dreams. In the Old Testament, he spoke to Jacob that way. He spoke to Joseph that way. Even Pharaoh, wicked king Pharaoh, got a revelatory dream from God. Saul can't get a dream for nothing. Then uh, God didn't speak to Saul through the Urim it mentions. Well, we understand why. See, in order to use the Urim, you have to have a priest. And Saul, because he was angry and jealous one day, killed all the priests, everyone he could find. No wonder God's not speaking to him by the Urim. Or prophets. Not a prophet. Well, Saul didn't have a very good relationship with Samuel there towards the end. No prophet that's coming to talk to you either. God and Saul are not on speaking terms. In fact, verse 16 of this passage says that God has become Saul's enemy. Does God do that to people? We're not used to using language this way. That God has become your enemy. God will make himself your enemy. Is it really possible to put yourself in a situation where God will not respond to you, where he will not listen to your prayers? 
Beloved, listen to me this morning. I am warning you today. We, we celebrate God's kindness. We plead with, with everyone to be reconciled with God. Do you remember that old hymn? We don't sing it very often anymore. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. So beautiful words. They reflect what we believe about the wideness of God's mercy, his great generosity. At the same time, we read Hebrews chapter 3, which says, Do not harden your heart. I'm telling you that today because this can happen. It can happen to you. It can happen to someone you know, someone that you love. I don't want what happened to Saul to happen to you. So I'm pleading with you this morning. On Wednesday nights during prayer meeting this fall, mostly uh, led through Judy Landis, we have been praying for about 30 people. Most of them are young adults. They spent years in our church. They went to our Sunday school classes. They sang in our children's choir. They attended our youth group, and they have walked away. You cannot walk away from the Lord Jesus without consequences. Saul inquires of the Lord, and there is no answer. Reminds me of what happened in Amos chapter 8. Look what the verse says. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a, a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Isn't that what Saul is experiencing? He wants to hear from God, and God is not speaking to him. Robert Chisholm points out that the communication is a two-way street. And the Bible also says that God will not listen either. He will not speak. He will not listen. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard, would not have listened. Or 2 Samuel 22. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them to the Lord. But he did not answer. Or Micah 3, 4. They will then cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, uh, he warns you that if you do not honor your wife, God will not listen to you. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Is it possible to get to the point where God will not listen and God will not answer? That's what Saul experienced. What do you do then? If God won't speak and God won't uh, listen, what do you do? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You're lost. You can try what Saul does, though, actually. Desperate times. Desperate measures. You know, we grapple with the particularities of this text. Uh, Saul visited a medium... And, and notice it worked, but it did not help. There's a difference. It worked, but it didn't help. He visited a medium in a city called Endor. 
Endor was a village in ancient Israel. Some of you are reading this passage and you hope that somehow there are Ewoks in the Bible. Of course, Endor is a forest moon, right? In Return of the Jedi. And you're hoping that if there's a medium here, maybe there's an Ewok in the Bible. It would make the Bible much better for you, you think, if there were Ewoks in the Bible. No. Sorry. Saul sneaks behind enemy lines. He goes at night. He disguises himself. Do you remember how in in the book of Samuel how important royal robes are? Uh, When David killed Goliath uh, several chapters ago, when David killed Goliath, Jonathan, the crown prince, took his royal robes and put them on David, conferring on him royal status. Here, Saul takes his royal robes off to disguise himself. That may be an important clue. And when Saul gets to the medium, she thinks it's a trap. Her life is in danger for practicing as a medium. And and Saul assures her, Saul swears by God's name. Oh, I swear by God's name that I will break God's law. Desperate times. Desperate measures. There are several references in this text to, to bringing someone up Bring someone up. I want you to bring up the person that I tell you. In the Old Testament, so the afterlife was, was not as clear as in the New Testament. We think in our, uh, with the clarity of the New Testament, we talk about, uh, in our casual, everybody does this casually, uh, when someone dies, we think about going up, and unless they're unrighteous, and then we think about them going down. But in the Old Testament, everybody went down. They went down into the grave, into Sheol, the realm of the dead. And a medium in her house or the cave in which she practiced, there would be a pit in the ground, and uh, she would speak into the pit and bringing somebody up. And the medium was there um, to, to interpret the sounds that she would hear from the pit. And now that practice, the dead never appeared. She just heard the sounds, chirps and clicks and clacks down in the pit. That maybe explain, explain why the medium is so frightened when Samuel actually appears. My favorite explanation of verse 12 is probably not right, but it's my favorite explanation of verse 12. One commentator suggests that the reason that the woman is so frightened is because though she's a practicing medium, she's never actually brought anybody up from the dead. And she's so surprised. It worked! Ah! I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, What's happening is that when Samuel appears, it dawns on her that because Samuel the prophet has appeared, it must be King Saul in disguise. Because only Saul... Samuel would only appear for someone of Saul's rank and authority. Now, how do you know it's Samuel? It appears that at first, at least, maybe throughout the whole episode, Saul can't see the ghost, the spirit. What does he look like? Verse 14 says, and, and, and she says, it's an old man wearing a robe. Ah, robe. Do you remember Samuel's robe? how important Samuel's robe is in the text. Actually, clothes are really important in First and Second Samuel, aren't they? Huh. Samuel had a robe. His mother would make him a robe every year, a new one. And uh, Samuel was wearing a robe the day that, um, in First Samuel 15, he said, to, he said to Saul, 
God has torn the kingdom away from you. And he turned to go and walk away. And Saul, in desperation, reached out and fell to his knees and grabbed Saul, uh, Samuel's robe and it ripped. And, and, and Samuel the prophet said to Saul, just like you have ripped my robe, God's going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. Remember that scene? And now, how do we know it's Samuel? Oh, he's got a robe on. Poor Saul, man. He can't get a break. Can he? This is a reminder of that day, terrible day. I'm interested in their conversation. Look at verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Desperate times. And this is what Saul says. I've called on you to tell me what to do, but I wonder about that. I don't think Saul needs to know what to do. He's the king. If you're the king, what do you do when a foreign army invades? You fight. That's what you're supposed to do. Saul's not a fool. I think he knows that. I think actually what Saul wants is some sort of hope from Samuel. He wants some sort of assurance that it's going to be okay. Tell me that I'm going to survive. Tell me that we're going to live. Tell me that this is going to be okay. Actually, in other words, tell me that the consequences of my disobedience to God aren't actually going to apply to me. Tell me that there's an escape hatch somewhere. Please. And every person in this room knows exactly what Saul is thinking. There are times you make careless or foolish or rebellious choices and when you meet up with your consequences, you don't want to experience them. You want there to be some sort of escape hatch. You want there to be some sort of way out. You just don't want it to be true. We're having a, a birthday luncheon today after the service. You're going to walk out of the auditorium and some of you will say, oh, what's that smell? It smells so good. What is that? And you'll say to yourself, I wish I was born in November, right? So I could go to the birthday luncheon. Somebody, I'm sure it's happened, maybe not today, but it's happened at some point in time. Somebody makes this big container of soup for the birthday luncheon and they, they bring it out and they, you put it in the back of your car and then you drive to church. And when you get to church, you get out and you look in the back and there is soup all over your car. And you think to yourself, oh, why didn't I put the lid on tighter? Why didn't I fix it? I wish I could undo my foolishness, my carelessness. Because I don't like these consequences. The American Cancer Society, they, they put advertisements on television and they're all based on the idea that smoking has consequences that you don't want. So they put some sickly person on the screen and they talk about how foolish it was for them to smoke and the damage that it did. Uh, you, can we roll back history so I don't have to experience these consequences? You smoked knowing it was bad for your health, but you didn't care, but you do now. Confronted with these consequences. I know what Saul is experiencing. I have had this feeling. You have had this feeling too. You come face to face with the consequences of your choices and you think to yourself, no! I saw it clearly a few times. 
several years ago when I was disciplining one of my children, so there'd be some infraction that would take place in the house, and I would sit down and we would talk about what had happened. We'd talk about the act of disobedience and the pleasure that this displeasure that this brings to members of the family and the displeasure that this brings to God himself and the eternal consequences of disobeying God. I would say everything that Ted Tripp told me I'm supposed to say at these moments, right? I would say these things. And then I'd lay out the specifics of what's going to happen. And it was usually only at that moment I, w- I could wax eloquently about how God hate sin, but it's only at the moment where I say, this is what's going to happen to you because of your sin, that there would be a break. No, no, no. Do you ever kids, uh, do your kids ever say to you when, you when you're going to remove them from the room, so they did something wrong, they know it was wrong, and you're going to take them out of the room, and it's time for discipline, and they say to you, are you going to spank me? Are you going to spank me? Are you going to spank me? Ask my mother. She will tell you about a few times that I was carried out of the church. My impatience during the first half of the service, waiting for for children's church, how long is this person going to pray? It's interminable. And and my mother would take me out of church. And when your mom takes you out of church, you know it's not good. And she would tell you about the moments when I would say, scream as she was carrying me out, help me, help me, help me. (laughs) Do you know what Saul is thinking here? It's not the crime that has upset him. It's the consequences that are upsetting him. And that is a sign of how far short of God's glory we have fallen. It is not loving. It is not righteous for me to be more upset about what happens to me than I am disturbed by what I did to you. That's the problem. I'm more concerned about the consequences than I am about the crime. When that happens to you, you are giving testimony to the fact that you have fallen short of God's good character. When you're more upset about the suffering you're going to endure than the suffering that you caused. That's why reconciliation is so hard. If a spouse commits adultery, how do you navigate this path? Are you genuinely upset about the fact that you betrayed me? Or are you dismayed over the disruption to your life that me finding out about it is going to cause? Are you more distressed by what you did or about the possibility that someone might find out about this and you're going to be embarrassed? Which bothers you more? Saul wants assurance from Samuel that God is going to get him out of this mess, that somehow the consequences for his past disobedience won't fall. And I understand his request completely. If this is a problem in our horizontal relationships with one another, consider how much do we have to think, how much do we think about the consequences in our relationship with God? Oh, God's patient. Sometimes we think that the warnings in the Bible are just healthy suggestions or just proposals or just ideas that maybe God is floating, the threatening look so that we'll shape up a little bit. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Most people have convinced themselves that that cannot possibly be right. God can't possibly, that can't possibly be true. Listen to what Fleming Rutledge wrote in his book called Crucifixion. It makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God. 
But there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged about something, about our property values being threatened, or our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. This is part of the good news, isn't it, to understand this? It doesn't sound like good news, but it's part of the good news to understand this. The wages of sin is death. We deserve God's righteous wrath because of our rebellion against Him. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Jesus bore the consequences for us in our place on the cross and He offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive them by faith. By making this conscious decision of dependence on what Jesus did for us on the cross. He's the object of our faith. That trust is what makes you a Christian. Now, what did Saul find when he roused Samuel? It was not good news. Samuel told him everything he had already said before. He brought up the Amalekites. He brought up the fact that God has torn the kingdom away from him. Uh, he actually, he, this is the first time he, he mentions David specifically here. Saul's, then he, he mentions Saul's death and the death of his sons. You're gonna, 24 hours, you're going to be with me, Saul. And your sons, dead. Saul collapses. This chapter ends with this very strange story about food. Very odd. Saul hasn't eaten. Why hasn't Saul eaten? What's wrong with you, Saul? Some people think that maybe this is his practice. When he was getting ready for battle, he would fast. Do you remember there was a scene earlier in which, which Saul made all of his soldiers not eat before battle? Maybe it's what he did by practice. It's, it's foolish. And the medium says to him, Oh, I listen to you. You should listen to me. It's interesting. I listen to you. You should listen to me. That same word is what Samuel had said to Saul. You did not listen to God. Now Saul listens to the medium and then he listens to his soldiers and she prepares a feast for him fit for a king. Grain-fed beef. ha ha. 24 hours before his reign and his life are going to end. It's Saul's last supper. It's going to be a few chapters, uh, a couple of weeks before Saul dies. Listen to the warning of his ignoble end. If you stop listening, God will stop calling. And without his voice, you have no other hope. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the sobriety of your word in that it warns us about our sin and our hard hearts and your holy nature. Oh Lord, we pray, we pray this morning that there would be no one in this building who would make that terrible decision to turn from you 
help us all to realize that it's not by being in this room and hearing this, listening to this, that we're saved or rescued, but, but it's, it's by heeding what your word says. And, and God, I, I pray for the men and women who are struggling with this listening, this hearing. Protect us. Rescue us from our hardness of heart. Lord, make us faithful as a congregation in encouraging one another and warning one another. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Lord, protect us, rescue us, keep us. You gave us your Son, the Lord Jesus. So we pray in his name on the basis of your love that is evident through his cross for us. We pray these things saying, Amen.